Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. I used to go out there and just pray and just ask God to help me, you know, and I would take a rock home every time I did that, you know, just, you know, just say, God, I don't know if I can keep going. This is crazy. So I'd put, I'd put a rock in my car and I'd, and I'd, I'd, I'd look at the rock, you know, I still, I mean, I got a bunch of them. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. What's my greatest passion? You know, if you're 65 years old and you say anything but your family, you're probably not a very good person. You know, I got kids. My oldest is Liam. Middle one's Kristen. Mills, my son, picked up uh, four kids in a marriage. Uh, Sarah, Carly, Tyler, Mitchell. Now I've got five grandkids. I won't start naming every one of them, but I'm, I'm telling you, um, I got a heck of a marriage and I got a bunch of great kids, and that is my passion. I'm obsessed with them now, and that's, that's the thing I'm really fired up about. My name's Leighton Cubbage, and um, I'm just glad to be here with you. I, I guess I've been an entrepreneur most of my life, and um, you, you were involved in some of that. And uh, we're currently, we're calling ourselves developers. We've got a, a beautiful uh, 118 condos going up on the shores of Lake Hartwell, overlooking the vista of Clemson University's football stadium. And you're right, we do love Clemson. <laughs> Clemson, yeah, man. I believe there are certain people in your life that provide you the mentoring and leadership necessary to succeed. We are all blessed with the God-given natural talents but there are only certain people that fully maximize that talent and share it with the world. Serial entrepreneurs are a special breed of people, true serial entrepreneurs. These are people that combine the ability to leverage their God-given natural talent and keep on stepping up to the plate and swing for the stars. But the most successful serial entrepreneurs know which pitch to zero in on, steer down, and take that mighty swing. Leighton Cubbage grew up in Sumter, South Carolina, and from the moment he left his football career on the gridiron, he started swinging hard. Leighton has hit it big, many times, taking lots of calculated risk, investing in places no one could imagine, and sleeping in the office and on the road for months when it was time to make sales necessary to fulfill dreams. But it all started with this one phone call with his daddy, words he needed at a crucial time in his life. You're my horse. How does a guy from Sumter, South Carolina, mm-hmm. go through life and find himself developing condos on a beautiful lake overlooking a football <laughs> stadium? Yeah. I mean, how does that happen? I, you know what? That's a great point. It's probably you, leave, you get on Highway 76 and head towards Clemson. But, um, you know, um, just – just like you with the technology and, and what you're doing with, with podcasts, which is so exciting and so cool, um, you just get involved in something and, and become truly uh, intense and and diligent. You know, people say passionate a lot. I don't. Passion seems like a different word to me. It's it's work, um, but you enjoy the work. It's fruitful and um, it rewards you along the way in more ways than one. So I think that, you know, that's kind of a long way to say you find something you can do and it makes you feel good about it. 
people write about congruency, you know, finding something that you're good at. And when you do that, you know, you feel like you're quote unquote playing your music. And I think that to me has been um, pretty much a, a, an evolution of finding what I could do. And once I could do it, I, I think I was, I was good at it and really got to be better and better at it. That's, I think that's, you know, there's a lot of things I can't do, man. We could, we could, I can wear your, your machine out here telling you what I can't do. So, um, and so, sometimes we celebrate a little too much and pat ourselves on the back too much about how great we are and what we've done in the past and that sort of thing. And I guess a little tiring, really, truly. Tell me about playing it for Clemson back in those days. What what years did you play and what was it yeah. like? And I think you tell funny stories about <laughs> – you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you spent more time on the bench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, um, I played in uh, on the freshman team in 1971. It was the last year of the freshman teams. Um, we probably had 70 people signed on to come into Clemson. I played in 72, 73, and 74. And um, after I played on the freshman team, I, I started for a short time on the freshman team, and then. Um, the next year, they they uh, I was redshirted, which you don't ever get in any games. And the year after that, I was uh, I got I was played in a lot of JV football games, which were humiliating but fun. And I got in a few games, and so um, I you know the real the real takeaway after four years of football, where I was really working toward an abyss, just nothing. Um, um, I can look back now and say I, I probably took 10,000 snaps at the line of scrimmage playing Clemson football, but only a handful of them were in real games. <laughs> you know, and so so um, it. You know, I used to feel pretty pretty uh, down about myself about that sort of failure, but then then I look now back and say, what kind of nutcase would put up with that and could do it? You know, and I was told I was told by. Uh, different people, you know, that I was pretty tenacious and, and that sort of thing. I, 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 you know, my athleticism didn't match a lot of those guys. And you know, we, we had lots of people, you know, playing. I mean, there was hundreds that would show up. So I got in some games, but not, not much, not enough to ever even mention it. What I love about a lot of your football stories is that majority of the people that you played with you still know today. Uh, talk about those relationships that kind of came out of Clemson football. Well, it's, um, well, it's, it was almost um, it became a tribe of people who were overcoming adversity because we didn't we that those eras back then in the early seventies, uh, the coaches weren't pleasant. They weren't uh, loving and you know thoughtful and and uh, kind. It was more of a, a, a brute force type thing. It was more of a, uh, it was more of a, let me, uh, let me be the image of uh, Vince Lombardi. So you have 10 or 11 coaches that are all trying to be Vince Lombardi and who can, who can basically kick your tail worse than the next guy. And they loved seeing who could be the, you know, they all wanted to become legendary badasses. And so um, it bonded all of us together. And, um, uh, my partner now in the uh, in our Cirrus Capital Partners that's been going on for ten years now, and we're doing the development in. 
uh, he and I just look at each other and go, oh my God, yeah, it was crazy. You know, and, uh, and, you know, if you're getting a full scholarship and they put your picture in the paper and you're, and, you know, the girls say, God, he plays for Clemson football and, you know, it's, it was all, all great, but it was kind of a, kind of a different thing, especially for me that, that, you know, didn't have any pro, you know, pro capabilities. I would, I would like to say, Bobby, I did own part of a arena football team and, the, the Carolina Rhinos, and I used to tell the coach, "Please put me in." <laughs> and one time, I went in the locker room, and the, and, the, and the assistant coach wouldn't talk to me. And I said, "What? What's the deal?" And he said, "The head coach had told all the assistant coaches not to give me eye, eye contact." Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wanting to get in a game. <laughs> so. Strap it in, baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. You tell this great story of your dad. Yeah. Share share a little bit about that because it's every time I've heard yeah. it, it's so great, and I yeah. love hearing it so many times. Well, it's I think um, with my father, the, the football situation was is is the way I saw myself. I I I looked at myself as a Clemson linebacker. And it's somehow or another, I'm going to this metaphysical world of where I'm going to be okay if I can just play football. And you know, I was sort of raised and brought up, you know, in the and for that kind of gratitude or, or that kind of uh, lift up. And um, um, so you go there and you you're living that life. You're living in that dorm, and you're basically a third team human being. You're a third team, you know, and you you they remind you of that. And the other players remind you of that, and the people below you and above you. So very competitive. And you go out and you get physically beat up, and you you fight and you scratch and give just more effort for less payoff than anything. And just from some kind of some kind of you know altered DNA I have, I I just wouldn't quit. And finally, I got down to the point where I realized I wasn't even going to graduate unless I made nearly straight A's to get out. So uh, in my fourth year, final year, with a few games to go, I, I, I pulled all my stuff together in my dorm, and um, I realized I was just going to have to leave the team. So I got up, and um, um, I will say I was, I was weeping. I hate to talk about it, but I was crying because I, I was feeling sorry for myself, and I hated where I was in life. So I got to go call my father, who thought I was the king of England. You know, He thought I was the greatest. And um, I called him. I said, uh, "Hey, hey, uh, hey, Dad, uh, Dad." I just called him Daddy. I said, "Daddy, uh, I have got to leave the team and go make all A's, uh, or else I'm never even going to graduate after do- after practicing four years like an idiot." And uh, he said these words to me. He goes, uh, "Well, you're my horse if you never win a race." And Bobby, at that very second, it was like my body changed, my life changed, my chemistry changed, everything about me changed. It was like, bam, I'm going to go do it. So I, I, I took my stuff right out of Mullen Hall, went down to the, went down, threw my stuff in the car. I drove to Chanello's Pizza right on Main Street. Do you ever eat any Chanello's Pizza? Love Chanello's. Okay, okay. I walk, well, they were delivering pizzas for the whole campus, first people to do that. And I walked in. I said, hey, they tell me you make a lot of money in here delivering pizzas. They said, yes, you can. I said, well, I want to do it. And they said, well, can you start? I said, yep, I can start. 
So I, I immediately started delivering pizzas, like grabbed a pizza, and, and the way you do it is you look at where it, you, they had the name of where it was going, you put it in the car, and you drive it, and you get the money and come back. And I think we were getting like 17 or 18% on, the, on whatever we sold or whatever we delivered. Well, that night, um, I had to go back to my old dorm, <laughs> and I go up in there, and there's football players there, and I'm walking in with pizzas, and I'm delivering pizzas to people, and they're going, Cub! What are you doing? I go, got a new career, baby. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I, I just, it just, I ended up uh, getting with the owner and starting two restaurants you know, in Columbia. And that's the first thing I ever, that's my first entrepreneurship thing I did. Is I, I put a little money with his money and uh, we started two restaurants. What'd you start? Snell's Pizzas in, in Columbia. Yeah, in Columbia? We, yeah, yeah, we were delivering the University of South Carolina. That is awesome. Strom Thurmond used to come into the restaurant. <laughs> the great United States Senator. He came in there one night. Is Leighton coming here? I said, oh, my God. I walked up, and there he was. I walked up, and he said, Leighton, Strom Thurmond, United States Senator. <laughs> like, and he would sneak. He would. He would. He lived down the street in Columbia, and so he would come up there, and, and uh, we had kind of a, kind of a darkish a bar and he would sit in there and eat kind of away from everybody. And some of, um, I had some buddies that played football at Citadel and they would come and eat with guys, uh, Fred Price, Kent, Kent Radford and those guys. And they would, they'd be in there. And one day I said, Hey, y'all know, <laughs> I said, they were sitting there. They didn't know they were sitting by. And also I said, Hey, you ever met Strom Thurmond? And, and they turned and looked and their eyes got as big as sausage. <laughs> United States Senator, you know, Strom Thurmond, hey y'all, you know, <laughs> So, so that's awesome. Yeah. So I want to go back real quick because I know mm-hmm. I think you've always talked about how that phone call is a, kind of a defining moment yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot to had to happen for you to make that phone call. It did. Um, I think about, you know, my time at Clemson football. Obviously, I didn't play, but I saw kids having to make those decisions. Yeah. You know, it's a tough. Yeah. It's not easy to say I'm going to go hang up the thing that you dream about a long time to go do something else. That's true. That's true. I I think, I think there is a, uh, um, I I think it was fortunate that I had that much of a different differentiation between my self image that quickly. You know, I was able, the love thing hit me so good. You know, I, I was loved, you know, if you've got unconditional love coming on you, that's, that's the deal. Well, like with dealing with with kids and 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 other family members, you know, I, my big secret deal is time and love. You know, go listen to them, go talk to them, go tell them you love them. You can't fix everything, but if you love them and they know you love them, they respond differently. And um, and I think with my father's unconditional love, he didn't care if I was in the NFL. If I was going to be in dental school, like my brother, my brother got in dental school, like I said, in a couple of years. And here I am just languishing out there as this big galoof, you know, fantasy linebacker. You know, I'm not even really a, a player. Um, and so, man, my self-image immediately was just, I need to go make money. And I started making, I started making money and didn't, and nothing, you know, everything didn't work, but we started working hard and. You know, you take that same kind of effort, and I've, I translate that oftentimes. Like um, 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 the great Benny Cunningham, 
who ended up being one of my best buddies. Um, he was two-time All-American, played for the Steelers for probably 10 years, won Super Bowl rings, and he's probably one of the best athletes I've ever seen. And he, he was also um, he was also a, a learned guy, very uh, very different. I, I always used to tease him. I said, Benny, you, you really helped me with racism. And he said, Cub, how's that, man? I said, well, I can't find anything that makes me better than you. I said, you're better looking than me. You're a better athlete than me, and you're smarter than me. Other than that, I'm great. <laughs> you know, he he would laugh and go, man, he would he do he'd laugh just about like you when we did that. But but he was he he was he could block me and knock me down anytime if I made a play or something. A coach said something like, you know, they would get on him about why I got around him or why you know I did something like that, and because he was just kind of going through practice. You know? <laughs> He was. He made. He made a lot of money being a football player, and I'm proud. I was all proud of him. And he ended up becoming a really good teacher. Yeah, yeah. He's. He was. He was. Yeah, he he yeah. was my wife Sarah's teacher. Really. At West Oak High School. Yeah. Well, he was. He's a Renaissance kind of guy. He. He transcended and was different than 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 most human beings. He was so gifted, and you would see him. Um, do things physically. He was big and just fast and, you know, maybe one of the finest all-around people I've ever known. I like to kind of think about the first time I met you. Yeah. And I have my own perception of it, but I but I remember it the first day I showed up mm-hmm. in McAllister Square and I meet you and the next thing I know, I'm in your, I'm in your, I think your Suburban or whatever it was and we're going up to some mountain with some other guy mm-hmm. and we're going to shoot a video of something. Yeah. And that was Greg Hillman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we go up there and shoot a little video and we come back and I was like, well, that was fun. Yeah. And, uh, and next thing I know we're putting out videos before YouTube even came out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think about that yeah. was a longer down the road, but <laughs> yeah. how did you get to that point? I think probably Probably the trans transformational step was um, I had I had built a uh, after the carpet after the restaurant business I built a carpet business and we distributed um, uh, Armstrong carpet and floor coverings and we put racks up in um, builders and developers offices and we sold carpet uh, with no overhead really and uh, it was a very very lucrative business. We did really well. We were really excited about it. And then we had a recession that about wiped out everybody. You couldn't give away carpet. <laughs> and so as the in the 19, I guess it was the 80s, um, the early 80s, uh, the divestiture of the telephone companies, they started breaking up. And um, there was a company called International Telephone and Telegraph, ITT. You hear about it. And, um, there was I remember an, that. Yeah, there was an interview. They had, I had an interview, and um, it's probably pretty rough around the edges. And uh, the guy, the guy who had come in from like New York and New Jersey to interview to help staff the South Carolina uh, operation, he was a football fan, and, and so we hit it off, and I probably told him some stories and stuff. So he got me to the next round, and the and the sales manager, a guy named Ron Massengale. He met with me, and I think he was pretty underwhelmed for me as a salesperson. 
you know, they were blue suits, white button-down collar shirts, red ties. I mean, they were black, shiny shoes, professional, they, like IBM or something. So Fortune 50 company maybe or something like that. So so um, at the end of the interview, I said, well, what, what does a guy make like, like uh, in this job? This is like 1982 or something, three, two. And... Um, he said, well, the guy last year in this same slot made $85,000. And that, that would be like $8 million to me. I mean, that, so I just was like, man, I won't. I mean, that, at that very moment, I don't, I don't know how to spell telecom, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be in telecom. So I, I tracked down. I got his home phone number. And I called him that, that night or the next night and said, listen. I am so fired up about this thing. I can't stand it. And I just got to have this job. If you would just give me a chance in this job, I promise you, I'll go wild. I'm broke. I got a baby daughter. Leanne was probably one or two, you know. And I said, uh, I got I got to make some money. Man, I can do it. And I think it just shocked him. And he ended up selecting me out of all those people. And so... Um, Bobby, I, I wanted to make money so badly, and um, I was so so uh, hungry. I had so, some, so many obstacles that, that I had on me that um, I ended up uh, winning trophies for leading the, the nation in sales. And I still got some of them. They're the most valuable things I own. You know, you know, you know how I am with little, little trinkets. And then, then I got a call from a company that was starting a long-distance company uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, my hometown, and they hired me to be in charge of outside sales. And that company went public. And um, after after a period of time, it was sold. And um, another company in um, another company in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, offered me a chance to be uh, vice president of sales. And somewhere along that line is when I began my own company, um, Cubs Communications. And then I. You know, went to Charlie Hauser, and, and the, we started a corporate telemanagement group that uh, grew to one of the fastest growing companies, an eight five hundred, and was sold for a lot of money. You you talk about when you've started some companies, and you get in and you realize you got something. Yeah, you get, and I can tell because you get excited. Yeah, yeah. How'd you know yeah. you had something? I think one of the things that uh, that happened was that. Charlie Hauser had been the president of the company that hired me in Greenville, okay? And he he is the kind of guy that he, if he walked in here right now and said, Cub, come on, we're going to walk across the street and we're going to buy that restaurant and we're going to turn it around. I go, okay. He's just that guy. You know, he's the he, he was magical. You know, he was a wonderful person, great. Loved me. He's, ten, he's like 10 years older than me and and uh, he wanted me to do what I can do, and he, he got a kick out of it. You know, he just watched Cub, you know, and no ego, no, 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 no nothing. And so he was, he's a brilliant business guy, great leader. And uh, and then when they brought, we brought other people in. I mean, there were a bunch of people that, are, that really have done well in life. Um, uh, David Hudson, he was one of the top sales guys. Ted Hassel, um, Dan Sterling. You just name after name, Barney Shorter, I mean, just Eddie Terrell, uh, iconic people, Judy Slaughter, Carol Graham. Um, I mean, we had great customer service. 
We set it up where it was um, largely employee-owned. Everybody had stock. You know, our secretary made three million dollars. Mm. Okay, and so we had. It was a big, big deal. You put owners on every position, man. You can't. You can't get better service than that. Mm. And the and the and the customer. I mean, everything from the customer service, the order entry, the the uh, credit and collections. I mean, top of the top of the industry. And so that thing went from three million a year to hundred million a year in about six years. God. Yeah, yeah. And it was, but it was the people. Again, you get great people. You put them in a loving environment, unconditional love, and allow them to let their God-given natural abilities play. And all of a sudden, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to bring the ball up to court, shoot it, and rebound it. You know, I ended up just being somebody that was probably walking around just waving at people. You know, you know. I said truthfully, it was like it was wonderful. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of organizations don't allow their their, their their people to use their creative natural abilities. And they're, they're all, and, and people get lockstep behind one person if you don't do it exactly like they did it. So it kills all the creativity in an organization. So we, you know, we had a controller, and I think you know her. Her name's Kathy McDowell. She's a brilliant woman. She's real sweet, real nice. She can be tough as hell, too. I shouldn't say that. But, um, we, we would have this meeting. They they called it the Cub Group, and it would be we were sitting around, and um, she said, "You know, we're spending. We got y'all are y'all have seven or eight people flying out in the mornings out of you know out of out of Greenville, going all over from Los Angeles and New York to Florida and everywhere else. Why don't you have them come here?" <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Have put on a like a like a convention and bring them in." I said, hey, "Okay." Oh my God, they all showed up. <laughs> It was wonderful. And we gave them trophies, and they would cry about winning the trophies, and they were wanting to compete with each other, and the business started taking off. You know, I really think that was a big part of it. And they got to meet everybody. So the personal relationships. People do business with people. They don't do it with, you know, uh, plastic uh, signs. I mean, it's people. And so when they saw our heart and how much we love customers, that's when it started really growing. Now a quick break to ask for your help. If you like Intersection, we would really appreciate you take a moment, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thanks so much for your help. Now, let's return to the show. Obviously, the you sold the company. Yeah, sold the company, mm-hmm. and I love how you go from there, and then you start working using some of those experiences for some other ventures that you got involved with. Yeah, yeah. talk about the early days of Voip, yeah. and yeah. how I met you. Okay, and we were doing something really unique. Right, that truly I think was pre-YouTube of what YouTube was trying to do. Yeah. But once they popped out, it was like blew us yeah, all out. Yeah, but- yeah. It was, well, um, I think the evolution of, of telecom, we, we began to invest in different different things. You know, we went from just a bunch of broke, uh, you know, guys trying to make something happen to investors, you know, and some of the investments we did work and some didn't. 
And one of the ones that worked for a long time was is what you were talking about, the international telecom business. And along that path, we, we had uh, uh, our techn- technical guys pull together a concept, voice over the internet protocol. And Bobby, I can remember um, even with the long haul portions of that VoIP, as we called it, um, we had an office in Mexico City and we had one in the, well, all over the place. But the Mexico City guys were like going, we've got these new Cisco routers and they're real clean and, you know, you can hear really well. And I, and I, and I was, I remember what a jerk I was. I was going, listen, I don't want to hear any of that California VoIP stuff. It's the worst quality in the world. <laughs> You know, and so they had to come up and they hooked it all up and we tested it. And sure enough, voice over the internet was started happening. But the great news is uh, it worked and it was clean and beautiful. But the bad news is it killed the international long distance business because everybody could complete and terminate calls anywhere they wanted to go. So all those huge margins went away. And um, so we began to think about what else could we do. And we, 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 uh, we failed at pulling together a local situation. I think the company Vonage, um, we were, the, the, say the, the going rate was like $100 a line. So we were going to come out at 58 and Vonage came out at 25. So that's, a, <laughs> so it was like, it was a bad, it was a bad moment. But, um, and then so we, we you know, um, we, the compression of video became uh, this big new science. And man, I was jacked about it. Uh, uh, in fact, I wanted to be able to. I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I talked about let's get these. Let's see if we could get movies and put them on the internet and and come up with a tollway to sell them. And people, well, I don't know, I don't know. You don't think they'll do that? Dirt gum Netflix showed up. I said, <laughs> that's the that's the only thing Tammy will give me credit for is original thought. She said, well, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah you had you thought of Netflix before they did, but. Good luck. You didn't do it, you know. So I remember the time that we were sitting in the office, mm-hmm. and one of the guys came in and said, "Cub, I got to show you this, where we could record a video, and it would put it into the server and play it immediately." Yeah. And now, right now, yeah, we do that all the time. Do it on your phone. We do it on our phone. Yeah. But this was 2007. Yeah. This was YouTube is just starting to get started. Mm-hmm. And we figured out for this little software package how to turn on the webcam and mm-hmm. record and immediately hit upload and it would be pushed out to everybody through an email. Yeah. I remember the day that you saw that, you about ran through the place and went ballistic. I know. Well, you know, in the in the telecom industry, we had spent so much money on marketing. My God, I we had offices, and we would go, you know, I would go to those offices, and I'd go out in the in the back area, you know, like where you walk out in the back and go to the restroom or something, and you see boxes lined up. I said, "What's that?" And I'd open them up, and it'd be it'd be our it'd be our uh, brochures. And I said, "What's wrong with our brochures? What you got them all back here for?" Well, they're wrong now. <laughs> I mean, you know, brochures are wrong about every 30 days. Yep. And if they're generic enough, they're worthless. So so all of a sudden, the Internet comes along, and this marketing idea of being able to make videos and push it over the Internet, that's that's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. So you're right. It's, it's, it's great. 
And we just so happened to be working with a hospital system. Yeah, yeah. And we started pushing email videos from doctors across the system to talk to each other for inpatient referrals. Yeah. That was kind of, I mean, that was groundbreaking. That was, that was, that was. And, you know, and, um, you know, in, in the hospital business, it's, a, I mean, it's one of the biggest businesses on earth, the most complicated. Peter Drucker said the hospital deal is the most complicated business you can, you can, there is. And um, uh, marketing is a, uh, uh, you got to be crafty and you got to be clean and you got to be able to be direct, but it's also got to be interesting. And something else that I think that I would love for you to talk about a little bit that, that I think is important is, thankfully, you know, I, I played high school ball. You know, I played basketball, ran cross country. I did all those things yeah. that a lot of kids do. A lot of people were very fortunate to go from there and play D1 ball. And there's a small percentage of people that go from there to go play professional ball. Right. You know, the, right. the numbers get smaller and smaller. But the thing about it is, is, being inside of a system of a D1 system mm-hmm. teaches you so much about life. Yeah. And it's hard to describe to people outside of that that have ever been a part of a D1 system of college athletics mm-hmm. because it puts a foundation of in you about what it, of mental toughness mm-hmm. and structure mm-hmm. and desire to win, surrounding yourself with good people. You know, what did college athletics teach you that really has propelled you to where you are today? I think I think that's a great that's a great question. I think um, one of the saddest things that I did learn was the difference in leadership. You know, the leadership and the way they treated players. You know, I used to always think, you know, if you got if you got when you when you come out of high school that won every game, you had you know our coach was Steve Satterfield, and he was kind of a he was kind of a uh, progressive coach. You know, he told me one time this is in the seventies, early seventies. He he, I got a haircut, and he said, "Why don't you cut your hair for you? Look like a redneck." <laughs> and this is when the football coaches used to have the burr heads and all that, you know. So he was like totally uh, progressive, you know, liberal if you would, with the way he he treated us. And we killed people with a bunch of scrawny guys, mainly scrawny guys. And so his leadership, getting the most out of people, loving them, we won all our games. And then when I go go to this next, you know, you know, my old beloved Clemson, the, those coaches there were not like that at all. I mean, they were, um, you know, they'd hit you. You know, it it was not good. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot about leadership, the way you treat people. Because you can treat the worst player on the team, and that guy may be the best friend. In fact, that bottle right there uh, has uh, my roommate's name on it. His name's Jim Ness. He was captain of the team. He was all ACC. And, um, 1974. 1974. And, undefeated uh, yeah, Holmes team. Yeah, yeah, my girlfriend's father was coming to see me play. And... Um, uh, guess it was against Georgia and uh, um, they didn't they weren't letting me dress out that game you know out of the clear blue and Ness went to talk to him and uh, they, they said no no he's not gonna dress out I said well you know that's cruel man he's got people coming to see him play I was you know so that was kind of the 
Mm. So that probably affected him in that game some, or or at least it affected the culture. Uh, they made the bottle because the team was seven and four. Now, if they if Clemson went seven and four, they want to fire you. Mm-hmm. But back then, seven and four was a big deal. They ended up firing that coach Red Parker, but um, uh, it just I learned a lot about what not to do with people. You know, to treat how you treat people. Um, the good things with the love of the team and the respect you would have and the hard work and just a, you know, it's more like farming. And what I remember about farming is when you got to get up, it's hot, you're tired, you just got to keep pushing. You're dirty, you're hungry, you're thirsty. But uh, the esprit de corps of having gone through really tough things with people like that is a lifetime thing. Steve Mudge um, came in with me. Um, he, he's, he, he ended up being the EVP and of the Ritz and the Marriott, and and uh, my gosh, he's 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 been wonderful to work with. We were freshmen together, and um, we lived on the same hall. And um, you know, all these years later, you know, we're having joy over there in, in Clemson now as we're opening up this big resort. Tell us about what's it like to come back to Clemson, to the place that a lot of people. You know, their college alma mater, yeah. the place they love, yeah. to open something up to do something that's almost like leaving a legacy. You're talking about the resort? Mm-hmm. You know what? Um, yesterday was the first day we I really got that thrill. Uh, Steve and I went out uh, on the lake. Um, the construction's there's probably 50, 100 people out there working. The, the, the foundation's built. And we were standing... Um, we were standing in uh, on the on the foundation, and we're looking over the lake and whatever, and we were just laughing, you know. Um, they were heading, it, it, you know. As I was looking around, I was thinking, you know, when we took undertook this thing and bought that piece of property and started looking for investors and buyers and whatever, I used to go out there and just pray and just ask God to help me, you know. And I would take a rock home every time I did that, you know, just you know, just saying, God, I don't know if I can keep going. This is crazy. So I'd put, I'd put a rock in my car, and I'd, and I'd, I'd look at the rock, you know. I still, I mean, I got a bunch of them at home. But um, when you, when, when, when my kids and my grandkids are running out there, around, um, you know, we got a fifty-yard football field we're building out there, and we got a big pool and um, um, a spot for weddings. There's gonna be places to put your boats. It's gonna be an amphitheater out there, fire pit. Outdoor restaurant, indoor restaurant. Um, it's it's all it's a resort. Looking at the stadium. So uh, when my kids and grandkids are running around out there, I think it's going to be a real big emotional moment for me. So you got me. Yeah. <laughs> I got you, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I have admired about you is your your drive to win. And, you know, a lot of the, I don't know if you remember, but when Greenville Tech did that big entrepreneur series mm-hmm. and we used to record all those speakers. Yeah. Somewhere I've, it's funny, I've still got all those DVDs of yeah. all those speakers. Right. There are like 50 of them. Right. And a lot of them, you know, as they would speak, you know, 35, 40 minutes, some of them would talk about their regrets, you yeah. know, 
they've worked so hard so long and now they wish that they would they could back time up and mm-hmm. you know spend time with their families yeah you know talk about the balance the uh, many people call it the work life balance but yeah. what is it like to be a dad a granddad push push hard be home push push finding the balances of spending time in your work and spending time in in your family and yeah. how you've seen that change over your life. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's, um, you know, it's funny because the, the dialogue of what, what the role men have now as fathers has changed from when, when my father was a, was a working guy, you know, there was no expectation of my father to get off, come, come in from the farm and take me, even take me to baseball practice much less come out there and sit and watch me practice. And now it's, uh, the, you know, we've evolved where a lot of the fathers feel kind of guilty if they're not out there almost pumping up footballs for people if they're going out for sports or something like that. So it, there's there's some positives, there's some negatives. Um, I think I think one of the things that um, I, saw, I, I saw some people doing was um, – they, they would they would confuse their roles with their wives and and they would get into situations um, that weren't always pleasant like that but um, you, you got to have a team with a kid you know the mom and dad got to play a coordinated team and um, sometimes the person who's got to go make the money's got to go make the money and sometimes the person that can take care of the kid takes care of the kid and um, you know um, we have uh, we have daughters that do really well in, in business, and, um, and they're having kids, and 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 some of them are having to get a lot of help, you know, from those husbands, you know, to, to make things go. So it's a different world. It's like a double income world now. Right. And so uh, the balance is critical. And you know, I've it's amazing to look at. Look at, at at my grandfather watching him. You know he he was always out killing it. Yeah, like he worked hard. Mm-hmm. You know it was it wasn't your just five day a week type thing. He was like we would be sitting at Sunday dinner and his phone would ring. He'd walk out the door and go do a deal, yeah. and that was common. Yeah, my grandmother tells a funny story. They went on vacation to Vegas with a bunch of people. He had a house deal. He got back on a plane, flew back to do the deal, and then got back on a plane, flew back out to yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was how he was yeah. built, and he was wired, and yeah. it was a part of that. And what's funny about that is that I have a lot of friends that, you know, are dual-income earners, you know, life works, and it's just they have a way of doing things. Where Sarah and I have, she, at first, she was very resistant to this entrepreneurial world, but I think she likes it a lot because we know what our roles are. And it's not like we have a role in the house, this, that. We, she just knows when I got to kick it in gear, right. I'm kicking it in gear. Yeah. But when, I, when it's downtime, I'm, right. I'm, I'm all in the house and having fun. Right. But to your point, it's about having a team. Yeah. I, 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 had, uh, I had something happen to me that, that, uh, that I can share that's, you know, you love – love to have our little stories going here but i'll tell you one i was in the in the whole morose you know destitute moments of, of being a linebacker that didn't get to play 
which is like that's the world's biggest problem <laughs> at the time. I'm all beat up, and the, and the students had come back to Clemson from the summer, with summer practice. I was all beat up, wore out, torn up, and I was going to turn my turn my uh, matriculation cards in, in Tillman Hall. And I'm standing in line in, in Tillman Hall, and I could hear something that sounded like a, like a dog howling. And as I got closer to the door, I realized that it was a guy. A guy was in, in, the, in the office in there crying. And I go, it was horrible sound. I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, that's a guy who is going to have to go home because he doesn't have the money or the ways to pay for his college deal. He, he's got to go back to where it was. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God. I looked down on my, looked down on my cards, and it had been stamped, stamped full scholarship, which means I, I paid nothing for nothing, you know, and or nothing for everything. And, um, and it just put me in a different zone. I was like, Wow. And the other thing it did is, like, I will never, ever be in a situation where my kids worry about their their money, whatever, you know, on their, I want to take care of my kids where I got to do whatever it takes. And that was, that was kind of a moment where, you know, you do things other people won't do, um, so you don't have to do things other people can't do. You know. I think about my mom a lot. You know, my, yeah. my parents divorced oh, yeah. and single income parent putting us through school, yeah. putting herself through school while she's putting us through school. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny as you're a parent, I, I see her, she'll walk in and we're, you know, we got something we're working on and we're planning to do something and she'll walk in and she's like, I'll take care of that. I'm like, mom, you don't have to do that. Yeah. It, it's not because I'm asking her; it's because she's still my mama. Yeah, that's right. And she ain't afraid to write a check when she feels like she needs to write a check. Yeah, and she'll do it because she's my mama. Yeah, and it goes back to the days of there were days when mom and dad split, and she was doing everything she could to make it. Yeah. Well, you know, and she'd be willing. To, yeah. She was much happier giving me a better car than she had. Yeah, and she, she wasn't afraid yeah. to pay for it. Yeah, she's your mother sewed me up one day when I, <laughs> when I fell on a dock, and uh, at the same time, I'd say all six of those gold Emmys up up on that upper shelf shining at me above your head. You know, your mama might need to have one or two of those over there at her house. Maybe I might have to take one and drop by to her. <laughs> but you know what? That's the truth. You know, um, um, when you got a mama like that. That, that can fire you up and fire on you. It's that's that's why you've got that's why you've been able to build what you've been able to build. You also did something very special for your mom. Yeah, talk about that. Well, it's a, a <laughs> you're you're hitting me with everything I like to talk about. Um, I'll be glad to put this on tape. It's um, in uh, 2001, my mother was 86 years old. It was her birthday, February 26, 2001. It was one of the best days of my life. It was uh, in South Carolina. It happened to be one of those kind of weird, warm days, and so uh, my mother was on oxygen and, and was struggling, and um, and uh, she lived in a, in a um, I guess a 
what I just call an old folks home. She had nice rooms and nice nurses and all that. But went out and got her in a, a limousine. She didn't want to go. But what we were going to do is we're going to dedicate a building at Greenville Tech with her name on it. So we picked her up in the white limousine. We drove her, drove, drove her there. There was a crowd of about 100 people. They were all sitting out in the sunshine. The uh, president of the school, Dr. Barton, spoke. And then they brought me up, and I looked at my mother from, from a little stage down and told her what she meant to me. Um, I remember I told her she was a tigress, you know, kind of that st- in a steel magnolia. She was tough, man, I'm telling you. And, um, and then um, my mother had been a kindergarten teacher. So um, this is a child development center we're naming. And so for the, for the ceremony to, to be kind of concluded, they, uh, they brought out a string of about uh, 20, 20 little five-year-old kids, and they yanked on a rope. When they yanked on the rope, down came the barriers, and it said, Margaret Mills Cubbage Child Development Center. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a tremendous, tremendous uh, moment. And uh, my family was there, my mother was there, and she was smiling. And uh, uh, she passed away that August, uh, August 1st of 2001. So, you know, to be able to give to your mama and tell her, you know, I mean, I can see your face now. You know, um, everybody doesn't have to put a name on a school or anything like that, but it's, it was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful investment to do that for me. Thanks for bringing that up. No problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when we were working on your presentation. Yeah. You know, we talked about the importance of having that in your presentation. Yeah. And as we talked about the idea of legacy. Yeah. What is the legacy you want to leave? Well, I think, you know, when people start talking about themselves too much, it's, uh, it's a little bit uh, nauseating. You know, it's really. And I'm making you talk a lot. I know, I know. know. (laughs) Yeah, it takes a lot of, Bobby, it takes a lot for me to get sick of myself. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I think I think I think we all strive to make sure we can deliver something of significance, and I I think I think uh, one of the things that we were we were uh, discussing earlier t- this morning, Tammy and I do a um, it's like a Bible study, but it, where where we we take these journals and we fill in journals every morning of what we're thankful for, like tomorrow. I'll have something in there about being here with you and doing that. And we've been doing that for 10 years, and we've got a whole cabinet full of journals. And um, part of that trail, I've begun to realize that, you know, there's, if you're not thankful, you're never going to be happy. You've got to be grateful for, for what, your, what your blessings are and counting those blessings. Those blessings are made up of family and friends and relationships. They're made out of opportunities, of things you get to see, just being alive and just just having the joy of waking up. And I think I think I, w- I would like to help push, uh, you know, if I'm granted more time, I'd like to grant push that idea 
of gratitude. I think gratitude is a big opener. And being thankful, I mean, it's like, look at your office. This is like the coolest office. I couldn't wait to come back over here. This is like your dream office. It is. You got, there's a a putting green in here. There's there's about 300 helmets over there signed by famous people. You got your golf clubs. You got your trophies. You got your diplomas. You know, you got your couch back, two buildings, two on the other end of the building. You can go take a nap on. I mean, this is great. This is your, you know, this is like, this is what people dream about. And you're, you've, you've done it, you know, helping other people and giving them interesting stuff to listen to. And I think that's, I think, I think that's something you can be thankful for. And I think, I think that's how you start and keep going. You know, not thinking about how, you know, you know, the worst thing about football, get me thinking about football was like, football, the worst thing for me used to be when I'd get my thumbs bent back and there's nothing more painful than your fingers. And nobody ever talks about that but man that hurts oh my god I tackle somebody and they run over me or something and you think my thumbs would be hurting I go oh god they'd be stuck out see how they stick out now and um but uh being thankful um to me is is the future and um I'm um uh, I'm, I'm I've been blessed I was I was raised like that and uh you know if you're not thankful you'll never you'll never be happy that'd be what I want to leave is my legacy. It's not, it's not how big your car is or how big your checkbook is or anything like that. You need to be, you need to be doing what, what, you know, using what I call your God-given natural abilities. Like uh, you, 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 you teach storytelling. You teach listening. You teach, you know, you teach these things. You're using the state-of-the-art digital technology to push it out. It's it's changing the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Layton Coverage. He's the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time. I love it. I love it. You know, it's um, what what uh, Benjamin Franklin said. Don't interrupt. I'm listening to my favorite speaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts, including Datapoint, hosted by Greg Matthews, featuring trending topics as he explores the idea of the quadruple aim, enhancing patient experience, improving population health, improving provider experience, and reducing costs in the system. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.